we'll be looking at the Good Samaritan. That was, well, it was a topic request. And so Matt told me I needed to do it. And I said, well, sir, yes, sir, I'm going to do it. So this is what we're talking about today. And it's in, again, it's in Luke chapter 10. Fairly well-known parable of uh, Jesus. And in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25 through 37, I have it here up on the board. It says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man came down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. So, this lawyer comes up to uh, Jesus, and he comes up to him, and he begins by testing him. He says He stands up to test him. So he's... He's trying to get one over on Jesus. And he asked a really good question. You know, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You know, what better question is that? We see that question asked in other places uh, to Jesus. And um, notice how he, Jesus responds to this. He doesn't say, well, what do you think? Well, what do you feel? He tells him, he says to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading to him? And so this is Jesus, the Son of God. He's saying, he answers him by saying, look to the law. Look to your law. And because in it, you're going to be able to find eternal life. And him being a lawyer, he either does really know what he ought to be doing, or he should know uh, what he ought to be doing. And so Jesus is appealing to the law, telling him exactly that you're going to be able to find that uh, in the Word. And again, this kind of follows a similar trend with Jesus, that he, he, he oftentimes, when he's being tested, he responds, you know, maybe not what is written in the law, but he says, this is what the law says, or this is what, this is what uh, the prophets say, or whatever it may be. He, or he says, it is written. And so Jesus constantly appeals back to law uh, for uh, these these types of questions. And 
the lawyer, apparently he knows. He responds pretty quickly. Uh, he says, "He says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself." And so he gives that. And also, of course, get a little ahead of myself. Jesus says that he answers rightly, but. In Matthew 22, we see that Jesus says, On these two commandments saying all the law and the prophets. And so everything that you read in the law, everything that you read about in the, in the prophets, it all hinges on them two commandments. And we see, we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. It says, You shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So with every fiber of your being, you ought to love the Lord. That, uh, that, that's, I mean, he is, he's number one. That is the priority, is loving the Lord your God. And also we see in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Some of you in the back may not be able to read this. But it says, Leviticus 19, verse 18, it says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge, against the children of your people, but you shall love the neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. So, you love the Lord your God, you love your neighbor. Upon these two, hang all the law of the prophets. So, if any of you have done any type of study in, 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 in the New Testament specifically, You'll know that there's different words for love. There's eros, there's philio, uh, and those are more of your philio is more like a friendly, brotherly love. Remember the, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. That's you know that's philio. Eros is more of that passionate type of love. But we also have this agape type love. I believe it's agapeo. That that's, that's the word being used here in in place for love in these passages. And notice what uh, agape, this agape-type love is described as. This is from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. It says, It can carry an element of sympathy, but also denotes to prefer, especially with reference to the gods. Here's a love that makes distinctions, choosing its objects freely. Hence, it is especially the love of a higher for a lower. It is active, not self-seeking love. Notice, he says, Choosing its objects freely. So you're choosing to, to show this love, and also it is active, not self-seeking love. So you're not looking uh, for out for the needs of self. You're looking for the needs of others. And also, uh, it is an active type love. And again, in later passages, we see how this love for this neighbor is shown that we can infer that when we think about loving God or loving our neighbor, it involves activity. It's not just this warm, fuzzy feeling that we feel. Just I, you know, I just really like my neighbor. Or I just really like God. There's more to that, and it involves activity. It involves expressing that love through the things uh, that we do. So this is that type of love that is that that we ought to show for God and all to show to our neighbors. Active, self-seeking love. But notice what it, what it says. So he gives, uh, he, he answers correctly, 
Jesus says that he answers rightly, but he says that he wants to, he, him justifying himself, or wanting to justify himself, he asks this question, well, who is my neighbor? And you just get this picture that he's trying, he's trying to justify himself, that he knows, he, I believe he, he pretty well knows what he ought to be doing. But he wants to be, he wants to be uh, as seen as somebody who's completely following this law, even though he might not actually be following it. And I believe in the way that Jesus responds is similar to how Jesus responds to the rich young ruler, saying, of course, remember the rich young ruler is saying that I've kept all of these commandments. And Jesus says, you still like one thing, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So he tells them, I've done all these things, but he says, wait, oh, wait a minute, you still like one thing. You're not ready, you're not really willing to follow me because you're not willing to give up your wealth. That if you really, really want to follow, if you really want to serve God or inherit eternal life, you come follow me and you sell all that you have, distribute to the poor. And it shows that he's not willing, to, later on we see that he's not willing to, he goes away sorrowful, he's not willing to give up that wealth. And I believe it's the same thing with this lawyer. He wants it, he wants it to make it seem like he's following the law. And he's, he has ulterior motives here because we already see that he's coming up, he's testing him. And we see that he's now he's trying to justify himself. So he's kind of being sneaky about this. But Jesus, I believe that Jesus, he's, I believe that he's showing this lawyer what he is truly lacking. And in this next story about this good Samaritan, he's going to tell him uh, what he is lacking. Okay, so he asks this question of what is a neighbor? Well, what is, who is my neighbor? And so what is a neighbor? What is that? When we think about that, is, is it just uh, the fellow living next door? Well, he's my neighbor. Or maybe it's to the extent of somebody that lives at the end of my street. Well, maybe that's my neighbor. Well, defining this, again, this is from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Notice the definitions of it. It's the neighbor, the person next to one. Remember that. So the one, the person that's beside you, whoever it may be, there's no distinction made. That's your neighbor. And then more generally, the fellow human being. So there's no distinction on distance. There's no distinction on culture, race, wealth levels, whatever it may be. Your neighbor is simply defined here as the person next to you. And so he continues on and we see he gives the story about the 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 good samaritan this fellow goes down from jerusalem to jericho he's beat he's left half dead and then we see where the priest goes by he sees him he passes on by the levite uh i like the way it's described as the levite the levite comes and he kind of just kind of looks and then he goes on by and so we have a priest and we have a Levite. And just in my mind, if I was in that situation and I passed on by, I kind of know what I'd be doing. I'd be thinking of excuses. I would be, 
think of all the reasons why I shouldn't be able to do that. And so this is a, again, a priest, a Levite. The priest would at least know the law. And so think about the reasons that the priest and the Levite could give for not helping. The first thing that I thought about is, so if you remember that the person was left, so this, this fellow that left, uh, that, that, that was beat by these thieves, he was left half dead. So he's just, the, the definition of that is entirely exhausted, was the, a bit the, the strict definition of that. So he is just, you just see him and he's just, he looks like he's about to, he's about to die. And uh, you think about this for a minute. There, there was actually a law, a law that it says, He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. If I was in that situation, that would probably be about the first thing that I would think about. It's like, well, if I try to help him, he may die. And then if I'm touching him while he's dead, he becomes un- I become unclean. We can't have that, remember. And you think about the priest. So he's probably, you know, he's going about the service in the temple, he would be particularly concerned about that. And so he could justify himself. He says, well, if he dies and I touch him, I will be unclean. What about what I participate in with the temple? Or how? what about this service? I'm not going to be able to participate in this because I'm unclean. And so I just think that's a really good excuse and a very easy excuse to come up with. Uh, again, the priest, what if he needs to perform work at the temple? Well, we, even if he doesn't die, well, he's going to slow him down. And so he's not, he's going to, he may miss a day performing work at the temple. And so he has to get there quickly. He has to be busy about that because, you know, people are going to be offering these sacrifices and what, what other things that I might be having to participate in. And I'm not going to be there. So i got to hurry and be there. You need to go to work. Not just the priest, but the Levite here. He might have to go to work. You know, what if the, the maybe it's the time of harvest and we got to get and go to the field. Hurry quickly, very quickly. Maybe that's a reason. Maybe there's some other emergency going on in their lives in which they can just avoid uh, this uh, individual. Not having to, not having to, uh, and he's, and looking at his condition, they're going to have to spend a lot of time with this individual. And so all these excuses that they could make, and ourselves, we're put in a similar situation. What excuse could we make if we're put in, the, in their shoes? Or what if somebody is, uh, we see somebody that had a car wreck, and we're the only one there, and, and we just, we're, you know, we're right there in that area when it happens. We just say, well, you know, got to go to work. Can't fool with that. And uh, I was in a situation like that several years ago, seeing a wreck or whatever, and I stopped, and there are just people. There's no, there's, no hot, there's no ambulance, nothing just happened. Just people just keep on driving by. I'm just like, these people are nuts. You know, what, what I mean, there could be somebody dying in that car or whatever, and you're just keeping on passing by. And uh, it's just fascinating in that in that circumstance. But there's loads of excuses that we could make, given in that situation or other any other situation in which some other individual may be in need of our help. So the Levite and the priest they pass by, but the Samaritan it says that he has compassion on this person. And given that he's gone from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jericho. 
I'm assuming that it's a Jew. It's not necessarily spelled out, but apparently he's a Jew. So this Samaritan has compassion on him. We see this. And so verses 34 and 35, he says, So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, while I come again, I will repay you. Notice what he does. He doesn't just kind of help him along to the end. He bandages his wounds, pours on all the wine, sets him on his own animal. So he's, the Samaritan has to walk to uh, this end. And he takes care of him at the end. And then, as he departs, he takes out these two denarii, that's money, and he gives them to the innkeeper for the purpose of using that money to uh, help him, take care of him. And he says, if there's any more, I, when, I, when I come again, I'm going to repay you. So, on top of that two denarii, the, he had to pay for lodging for both of them. So, there's already that money. And then he's, so this was a uh, great expense of money. And also, a great amount of time that's spent uh, with taking care of this individual uh, who is a Jew and a Samaritan is taking, uh, taking care of him. Now, the Samaritans kind of lived, it would have been in, in the northern part of Israel. And there's a lot of tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. And the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible says the animosity continued in Jesus' day. Uh, both groups, that being the Samaritans and the Jews, excluded the other from their respective cultic centers, the Jerusalem Temple and Samaritan Temple on Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans, for example, were forbidden access to the inner courts of the temple, and offerings they might give were accepted as from Gentiles. Thus, although probably more accurately defined as schismatics, it appears Samaritans were in practice treated as Gentiles. All marriage between the groups was therefore forbidden, and social intercourse was greatly restricted. With such proscribed separation, it is not surprising that inter any interaction between the two groups was strained. The mere term Samaritan was one of contempt, of contempt on the lips of Jews, and among some scribes it possibly would not even be uttered. And he says, see the apparent circumlocation in Luke 10, verse 37. This is when the lawyer says, he who showed mercy on him. He wouldn't say it was the Samaritan. It was he who showed the mercy on him. And so that's where he's getting that from, that it may just not have been, they, they wouldn't even utter, uh, wouldn't even utter uh, this term Samaritan. And then we also see the disciples' reaction to the Samaritan refusal of lodging. That's when James and John, I believe, decide that they want to call fire on down on the Samaritans. And... We see their reaction to that, and it's a good. It says it's a good example of the animosity felt by Jews for Samaritans at the time. So, so we got the priest passed by, the Levite passed by, and then we have the Samaritan comes and helps him. The one person that would have a really good excuse for not helping this person, I think, is a good excuse that why would I deal with them? I can't even. I'm not even supposed to be. I, you know, I mean, they're not really in fellowship with these individuals. I can't marry. I, I'm restricted to social intercourse. And so what would people think if they see me carrying this Jew to the end and taking care of him? What, 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 I mean, that's going to cause a big ruckus. That's going to cause chaos. And we see this individual 
just none of this really mattered. He says that he just simply had compassion on that person and was willing to take him in and was willing to help him. And the Jews wouldn't have no part of that. For whatever reason, they just were too busy uh, to help uh, their fellow Jew. And so, again, the Samaritans, uh, ones that are treated as Gentiles, do better than the Jews that have the law and know it and follow it or claim that they follow it. All right? Now, going back to, he's, he gives two denarii to uh, the, the innkeeper. And this was approximately a day's wage. And uh, it would have been equivalent to about, uh, it was about like, around, I think it was around a tenth of an ounce of silver is what this denarii was. So it was approximately a day's wage. And so you think about this for a minute. Think, think about this in modern times. And so I did a little math. And, for example, if I work five days a week I, and, and there are 52 weeks in a year not, and say you're not, you're not getting off for any type of holiday and you work five days a week, that's 260 working days, okay? The median Mississippi salary in 2019 was 45792 Median means middle. Of all the range of salary, if you were to draw a line in the middle of those ranges, it would be the 45792 okay? So... Take that as median MS Mississippi salary might have gone up or down a little bit, but around the same. So, if you do uh, that salary and divide it by 260 working days, that means an individual is grossing around 176 bucks a day. And so, remember that this would have been, so this is around a day's wage. Remember that the uh, Samaritan gave the innkeeper two denarii. And if we multiply that by two, we get $352.24. So think about this in terms of today. This would be like somebody, not only are they paying, paying the hotel, so if you go to the Holiday Inn, if you ever, if you looked at the rates for the Holiday Inn, it's not very cheap, or I don't, I don't think it's cheap. So you're already in it, you know, 100 bucks for keeping the individual, not counting your time, not counting the, your own stuff that you use to tend to them. And then... You give the equivalent of around three hundred and fifty bucks to the innkeeper and say you take care of him. And so and then if there's anything more, I'm going to I'll come when I come back later I'm gonna pay. So this would be like I just think this would be like somebody just ponying up five hundred bucks to take care of this individual that uh, that in an, any other circumstance probably wouldn't have nothing to do with him. This would probably be like, you know, I don't know, maybe if it was some, I don't know, maybe a Muslim comes in and I help him and I and then I spend 500 bucks to help him. It's just something that's just, wow, that's, you know, this is, it's just kind of, you know, amazing what he was willing to do. Uh, just something that just seems out of the ordinary when you think about it, in, 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 at least according to the Jews and, 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 the, and the way the world works, that's just, Strange, but yet we see here the Samaritan. He has compassion on uh, this Jew, so he's willing to spend his time. He's willing to spend a great amount of money uh, for helping this individual. Now, when we see that, and of course the lawyer immediately understands, you know, who who is the neighbor of who who was the one that was the neighbor? It wasn't the one that was a Jew 
or that lived in the same nation or maybe lived in the same area. It was the one who showed mercy on him. Now, we look at Luke chapter 6 and verse 35. It says, But love your enemies, do good in the land, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. So this is talking about loving your enemies. And I don't know whether they would have been, if they met each other on the road under better circumstances, I don't know if they'd rather, if they would have seen themselves enemies, those two particular individuals. But pretty likely they probably would have, they wouldn't have been friendly. Or the, the Jew, the, the, the one that was beat, probably wouldn't have been very friendly uh, to this Samaritan. But we see how the Samaritan reacts to it, that he does good, he lands, so he gives that money, but he's hoping for nothing in return. And this is how Jesus says that you, how you love your enemies. And if this is how we treat our enemies, how should we treat our brethren and our neighbor? At, uh, at least treat them the same way, at the very least. But... If you're going to treat your enemy this way, how much more, how much better are you going to treat your brethren and your, your neighbor that is not an enemy? That uh, if we have to do this, and we were, when we're doing good to others, uh, when we're helping them, and we give them any type of money or give them stuff, we're not doing that in hopes for any type of return. We're doing that because it's the right thing to do, because it's the good thing to do. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, it says, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. So Paul writing says, Let us not grow weary in doing good. We're going to reap eventually if we do not lose heart. Notice what he says, let us do good to all, not to some, not to just those that are Christians, not to those that just look the, that look the same as us, not to those that have the same amount of money as us, whatever. He says, let us do good to all. And But we do especially do good to those who are of the household of, of faith. That we're looking out for our brethren, we're focusing on them, making sure that they have all that they need, but also we're looking out for the needs of everyone. And we're called to do good to all of them. And going back to Luke chapter 6, what does doing good look like? Uh, we do good, we land, hoping for nothing in return. Uh, that's what this doing good looks like. So, again, yeah, who is the neighbor? The one that showed mercy, the one that extended mercy. Uh, to him. And so being a neighbor has nothing to do with living next door to somebody. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean being that the neighbor is one that you are friendly with or one that you haven't even have an acquaintance with. It is simply helping those that are near. If you come across somebody that needs help, that's your neighbor, those that are near. It doesn't matter whether they're a Jew, a Samaritan, a Muslim or some other, whatever it may be, if they're near and they need or or in need of help, uh, we see what loving of them looks like. It's helping them that are in need. So that's the end of my lesson. There, I hope it's been useful for you all, y'all. But I want to look at these few verses uh, again. At the very beginning of those scriptures, the lawyer asks a very good question: How, you know, what shall, you know, how do we inherit eternal life? 
Well, we see the response. Love God, love your neighbor. The rich young ruler is asked, what do I do to inherit eternal life? He says, do these commandments, but also give away your wealth, distribute to the poor, come follow me. We have another similar question of what do I do to be saved? What, how do I inherit eternal life? We see that in Acts 2, verse 36 through 39. And this is Peter talking. He's telling the Jews that the Messiah that you were looking for, y'all killed him. He says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord God are called. To these people that heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they says, What shall we do? How do we, how do, how, you know, how do we, uh, deal with this fact how how do we be forgiven by, uh, because we had done this uh, the lord in christ we are the ones that have been we we are the ones who crucified him and then peter tells them how to have their sin how to have their sins forgiven he tells them to repent and he tells them to be baptized in the name of jesus christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive uh, the ghost uh, the holy the, the ghost the gift of the holy spirit and again, this promise is for everyone, even those that are far off. And so, if there's anyone here who wants to inherit eternal life, who wants to have their sins forgiven, we know, we see how Peter tell, what Peter responds to them, to repent, be baptized. We also see where we ought to have to confess Christ as well. And uh, so, but we see how they respond. That to those that are now under this new covenant, the covenant in which we are under. So if there's anyone here uh, that wants to become a Christian, we'd certainly like to talk with you about those things. And if you're already a Christian, and uh, for whatever reason, maybe there's some sin that's crept into your life that you need to deal with, maybe that, that you need to repent of, maybe things that you need to confess, uh, we certainly offer this time of invitation now. Uh, will you come as we stand and as we sing? Brother.